Chapter eighteen of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter eighteen. Language of metrical composition, why and wherein essentially different from that of prose, origin and elements of metre its necessary consequences and the conditions thereby imposed on the metrical writer in the choice of his diction i conclude therefore that the attempt is impracticable and that were it not impracticable it would still be useless for the very power of making the selection implies the previous possession of the language selected or where can the poet have lived and by what rules could he direct his choice which would not have enabled him to select and arrange his words by the light of his own judgment we do not adopt the language of a class by the mere adoption of such words exclusively as that class would use or at least understand but likewise by following the order in which the words of such men are wont to succeed each other now this order in the intercourse of uneducated men is distinguished from the diction of their superiors in knowledge and power by the greater disjunction and separation in the component parts of that whatever it be which they wish to communicate there is a want of that prospectiveness of mind that serve which enables a man to foresee the whole of what he is to convey appertaining to any one point and by this means so to subordinate and arrange the different parts according to their relative importance as to convey it at once and as an organized whole now i will take the first stanza on which i have chanced to open in the lyrical ballads it is one the most simple and the least peculiar in its language in distant countries have i been and yet i have not often seen a healthy man a man full-grown weep in the public roads alone but such a one on english ground and in the broad highway i met along the broad highway he came his cheeks with tears were wet sturdy he seemed though he was sad and in his arms a lamb he had the words here are doubtless such as are current in all ranks of life and of course not less so in the hamlet and cottage than in the shop manufactory college or palace but is this the order in which the rustic would have placed the words i am grievously deceived if the following less compact mode of commencing the same tale be not a far more faithful copy i have been in a many parts far and near and i don't know that i ever saw before a man crying by himself in the public road a grown man i mean that was neither sick nor hurt etc etc but when i turn to the following stanza in the thorn at all times of the day and night this wretched woman thither goes and she is known to every star and every wind that blows and there beside the thorn she sits when the blue daylight's in the skies and when the whirlwind's on the hill or frosty air is keen and still and to herself she cries o oh misery o oh misery o oh woe is me o oh misery and compare this with the language of ordinary men or with that which i can conceive at all likely to proceed in real life from such a narrator as is supposed in the note to the poem compare it either in the succession of the images or of the sentences i am reminded of the sublime prayer and hymn of praise which milton in opposition to an established liturgy presents as a fair specimen of common extemporary devotion and such as we might expect to hear from every self-inspired minister of a conventicle and i reflect with delight how little a mere theory though of his own workmanship interferes with the processes of genuine imagination in a man of true poetic genius who possesses as mr wordsworth if ever man did most assuredly does possess the vision and the faculty divine one point then alone remains but that the most important its examination having been indeed my chief inducement for the preceding inquisition there neither is nor can be any essential difference between the language of prose and metrical composition 
such is mr wordsworth's assertion now prose itself at least in all argumentative and consecutive works differs and ought to differ from the language of conversation even as reading ought to differ from talking unless therefore the difference denied be that of the mere words as materials common to all styles of writing and not of the style itself in the universally admitted sense of the term it might be naturally presumed that there must exist a still greater between the ordinance of poetic composition and that of prose than is expected to distinguish prose from ordinary conversation there are not indeed examples wanting in the history of literature of apparent paradoxes that have summoned the public wonder as new and startling truths but which on examination have shrunk into tame and harmless truisms as the eyes of a cat seen in the dark have been mistaken for flames of fire but mr wordsworth is among the last men to whom a delusion of this kind would be attributed by any one who had enjoyed the slightest opportunity of understanding his mind and character where an objection has been anticipated by such an author as natural his answer to it must needs be interpreted in some sense which either is or has been or is capable of being controverted my object then must be to discover some other meaning for the term essential difference in this place exclusive of the indistinction and community of the words themselves for whether there ought to exist a class of words in the english in any degree resembling the poetic dialect of the greek and italian is a question of very subordinate importance the number of such words would be small indeed in our language and even in the italian and greek they consist not so much of different words as of slight differences in the forms of declining and conjugating the same words forms doubtless which having been at some period more or less remote the common grammatic flexions of some tribe or province had been accidentally appropriated to poetry by the general admiration of certain master intellects the first established lights of inspiration to whom that dialect happened to be native essence in its primary signification means the principle of individuation the inmost principle of the possibility of anything as that particular thing it is equivalent to the idea of a thing whenever we use the word idea with philosophic precision existence on the other hand is distinguished from essence by the superinduction of reality thus we speak of the essence and essential properties of a circle but we do not therefore assert that anything which really exists is mathematically circular thus too without any tautology we contend for the existence of the supreme being that is for a reality correspondent to the idea there is next a secondary use of the word essence in which it signifies the point or ground of contradistinction between two modifications of the same substance or subject thus we should be allowed to say that the style of architecture of westminster abbey is essentially different from that of st paul even though both had been built with blocks cut into the same form and from the same quarry only in this latter sense of the term must it have been denied by mr wordsworth for in this sense alone is it affirmed by the general opinion that the language of poetry that is the formal construction or architecture of the words and phrases is essentially different from that of prose now the burden of the proof lies with the oppugner not with the supporters of the common belief mr wordsworth in consequence assigns as the proof of his position that not only the language of a large portion of every good poem even of the most elevated character must necessarily except with reference to the metre in no respect differ from that of good prose but likewise that some of the most interesting parts of the best poems will be found to be strictly the language of prose when prose is well written the truth of this assertion might be demonstrated by innumerable passages from almost all the poetical writings even of milton himself he then quotes gray's sonnet in vain to me the smiling morning shine and reddening phoebus lifts his golden fire the birds in vain their amorous descant join or cheerful fields resume their green attire these ears alas for other notes repine a different object do these eyes require my lonely anguish melts no heart but mine and in my breast the imperfect joys expire 
yet morning smiles the busy race to cheer and new-born pleasure brings to happier men the fields to all their wonted tribute bear to warm their little loves the birds complain i fruitless mourn to him that cannot hear and weep the more because i weep in vain and adds the following remark it will easily be perceived that the only part of this sonnet which is of any value is the lines printed in italics it is equally obvious that except in the rhyme and in the use of the single word fruitless for fruitlessly which is so far a defect the language of these lines does in no respect differ from that of prose an idealist defending his system by the fact that when asleep we often believe ourselves awake was well answered by his plain neighbour ah but when awake do we ever believe ourselves asleep things identical must be convertible the preceding passage seems to rest on a similar sophism for the question is not whether there may not occur in prose an order of words which would be equally proper in a poem nor whether there are not beautiful lines and sentences of frequent occurrence in good poems which would be equally becoming as well as beautiful in good prose for neither the one nor the other has ever been either denied or doubted by any one the true question must be whether there are not modes of expression a construction and an order of sentences which are in their fit and natural place in a serious prose composition but would be disproportionate and heterogeneous in metrical poetry and vice versa whether in the language of a serious poem there may not be an arrangement both of words and sentences and a use and selection of what are called figures of speech both as to their kind their frequency and their occasions which on a subject of equal weight would be vicious and alien incorrect and manly prose i contend that in both cases this unfitness of each for the place of the other frequently will and ought to exist and first from the origin of metre this i would trace to the balance in the mind effected by that spontaneous effort which strives to hold in check the workings of passion it might be easily explained likewise in what manner this salutary antagonism is assisted by the very state which it counteracts and how this balance of antagonists became organized into metre in the usual acceptation of that term by a supervening act of the will and judgment consciously and for the foreseen purpose of pleasure assuming these principles as the data of our argument we deduce from them two legitimate conditions which the critic is entitled to expect in every metrical work first that as the elements of metre owe their existence to a state of increased excitement so the metre itself should be accompanied by the natural language of excitement secondly that as these elements are formed into metre artificially by a voluntary act with the design and for the purpose of blending delight with emotion so the traces of present volition should throughout the metrical language be proportionately discernible now these two conditions must be reconciled and co-present there must be not only a partnership but a union an interpenetration of passion and of will of spontaneous impulse and of voluntary purpose again this union can be manifested only in a frequency of forms and figures of speech originally the offspring of passion but now the adopted children of power greater than would be desired or endured where the emotion is not voluntarily encouraged and kept up for the sake of that pleasure which such emotion so tempered and mastered by the will is found capable of communicating it not only dictates but of itself tends to produce a more frequent employment of picturesque and vivifying language than would be natural in any other case in which there did not exist as there does in the present a previous and well understood though tacit compact between the poet and his reader that the latter is entitled to expect and the former bound to supply this species and degree of pleasurable excitement we may in some measure apply to this union the answer of polixenes in the winter's tale to perdita's neglect of the street gilliflowers because she had heard it said there is an art which in their piedness shares with great creating nature polixenes say there be yet nature is made better by no mean but nature makes that mean so o'er oh, that art which you say adds to nature is an art that nature makes you see sweet maid we marry a gentler scion to the wildest stock 
and make conceive a bark of baser kind by bud of nobler race this is an art which does mend nature change it rather but the art itself is nature secondly i argue from the effects of metre as far as metre acts in and for itself it tends to increase the vivacity and susceptibility both of the general feelings and of the attention this effect it produces by the continued excitement of surprise and by the quick reciprocations of curiosity still gratified and still re-excited which are too slight indeed to be at any one moment objects of distinct consciousness yet become considerable in their aggregate influence as a medicated atmosphere or as wine during animated conversation they act powerfully though themselves unnoticed where therefore correspondent food and appropriate matter are not provided for the attention and feelings thus roused there must needs be a disappointment felt like that of leaping in the dark from the last step of a staircase when we had prepared our muscles for a leap of three or four the discussion on the powers of metre in the preface is highly ingenious and touches at all points on truth but i cannot find any statement of its powers considered abstractly and separately on the contrary mr wordsworth seems always to estimate metre by the powers which it exerts during and as i think in consequence of its combination with other elements of poetry thus the previous difficulty is left unanswered what the elements are with which it must be combined in order to produce its own effects to any pleasurable purpose double and trisyllable rhymes indeed form a lower species of wit and attended to exclusively for their own sake may become a source of momentary amusement as in poor smart's dystick to the welsh squire who had promised him a hare tell me thou son of great cadwallader hast sent the hare or hast thou swallowed her but for any poetic purposes metre resembles if the aptness of the simile may excuse its meanness yeast worthless or disagreeable by itself but giving vivacity and spirit to the liquor with which it is proportionally combined the reference to the children in the wood by no means satisfies my judgment we all willingly throw ourselves back for a while into the feelings of our childhood this ballad therefore we read under such recollections of our own childish feelings as would equally endear to us poems which mr wordsworth himself would regard as faulty in the opposite extreme of gaudy and technical ornament before the invention of printing and in a still greater degree before the introduction of writing metre especially alliterative metre whether alliterative at the beginning of the words as in piers ploughman or at the end as in rhymes possessed an independent value as assisting the recollection and consequently the preservation of any series of truths or incidents but i am not convinced by the collation of facts that the children in the wood owes either its preservation or its popularity to its metrical form mr marshall's repository affords a number of tales in prose inferior in pathos and general merit some of as old a date and many as widely popular tom hickathrift jack the giant killer goody two-shoes and little red riding hood are formidable rivals and that they have continued in prose cannot be fairly explained by the assumption that the comparative meanness of their thoughts and images precluded even the humblest forms of metre the scene of goody two-shoes in the church is perfectly susceptible of metrical narration and among the thaumata thaumastatata even of the present age i do not recollect a more astonishing image than that of the whole rookery that flew out of the giant's beard scared by the tremendous voice with which this monster answered the challenge of the heroic tom hickathrift if from these we turn to compositions universally and independently of all early associations beloved and admired would the maria the monk or the poor man's ass of stern be read with more delight or have a better chance of immortality had they without any change in the diction been composed in rhyme than in their present state if i am not grossly mistaken the general reply would be in the negative nay i will confess that in mr wordsworth's own volumes the anecdote for fathers simon lee alice fell beggars and the sailor's mother notwithstanding the beauties which are to be found in each of them where the poet interposes the music of his own thoughts 
would have been more delightful to me in prose told and managed as by mr wordsworth they would have been in a moral essay or pedestrian tour metre in itself is simply a stimulant of the attention and therefore excites the question why is the attention to be thus stimulated now the question cannot be answered by the pleasure of the metre itself for this we have shown to be conditional and dependent on the appropriateness of the thoughts and expressions to which the metrical form is superadded neither can i conceive any other answer that can be rationally given short of this i write in metre because i am about to use a language different from that of prose besides where the language is not such how interesting soever the reflections are that are capable of being drawn by a philosophic mind from the thoughts or incidents of the poem the metre itself must often become feeble take the last three stanzas of the sailor's mother for instance if i could for a moment abstract from the effect produced on the author's feelings as a man by the instant at the time of its real occurrence i would dare appeal to his own judgment whether in the metre itself he found a sufficient reason for their being written metrically and thus continuing she said i had a son who many a day sailed on the seas but he is dead in denmark he was cast away and i've travelled far as hull to see what clothes he might have left or other property the bird and cage they both were his "'Twas my son's bird, and neat and trim he kept it. "'Many voyages this singing bird hath gone with him. "'When last he sailed he left the bird behind, "'as it might be perhaps from bodings of his mind. "'He to a fellow lodger's care had left it, "'to be watched and fed, till he came back again, "'and there I found it when my son was dead. "'And now God help me for my little wit. "'I trail it with me, sir, he took so much delight in it. "'If disproportioning the emphasis we read these stanzas "'so as to make the rhymes perceptible, even trisyllable rhymes could scarcely produce an equal sense of oddity and strangeness as we feel here in finding rhymes at all in sentences so exclusively colloquial i would further ask whether but for that visionary state into which the figure of the woman and the susceptibility of his own genius had placed the poet's imagination a state which spreads its influence and colouring over all that coexists with the exciting cause in which the simplest and the most familiar things gain a strange power of spreading awe around them I would ask the poet whether he would not have felt an abrupt downfall in these verses from the preceding stanza. The ancient spirit is not dead. Old times, thought I, are breathing there. Proud was I that my country bred such strength, a dignity so fair. She begged an alms, like one in poor estate. I looked at her again, nor did my pride abate. It must not be omitted, and is besides worthy of notice, that those stanzas furnish the only fair instance that I have been able to discover in all Mr. Wordsworth's writing, of an actual adoption or true imitation, of the real and very language of low and rustic life freed from provincialisms thirdly i deduce the position from all the causes elsewhere assigned which render metre the proper form of poetry and poetry imperfect and defective without metre metre therefore having been connected with poetry most often and by a peculiar fitness whatever else is combined with metre must though it be not itself essentially poetic have nevertheless some property in common with poetry as an intermedium of affinity a sort if i may dare borrow a well-known phrase from technical chemistry of mordant between it and the superadded metre now poetry mr wordsworth truly affirms does always imply passion which word must be here understood in its most general sense as an excited state of the feelings and faculties and as every passion has its proper pulse so will it likewise have its characteristic modes of expression but where there exists that degree of genius and talent which entitles a writer to aim at the honours of a poet the very act of poetic composition itself is, and is allowed to imply and to produce, an unusual state of excitement, which of course justifies and demands a correspondent difference of language, as truly, though not perhaps in as marked a degree, as the excitement of love, fear, rage, or jealousy. 
the vividness of the descriptions or declamations in dunn or dryden is as much and as often derived from the force and fervour of the describer as from the reflections forms or incidents which constitute their subject and materials the wheels take fire from the mere rapidity of their motion to what extent and under what modifications this may be admitted to act i shall attempt to define in an after remark on mr wordsworth's reply to this objection or rather on his objection to this reply as already anticipated in his preface fourthly and as intimately connected with this if not the same argument in a more general form i adduce the high spiritual instinct of the human being impelling us to seek unity by harmonious adjustment and thus establishing the principle that all the parts of an organized whole must be assimilated to the more important and essential parts this and the preceding arguments may be strengthened by the reflection that the composition of a poem is among the imitative arts and that imitation as opposed to copying consists either in the interfusion of the same throughout the radically different or of the different throughout a base radically the same lastly i appeal to the practice of the best poets of all countries and in all ages as authorizing the opinion deduced from all the foregoing that in every import of the word essential which would not here involve a mere truism there may be is and ought to be an essential difference between the language of prose and of metrical composition in mr wordsworth's criticism of gray's sonnet the reader's sympathy with his praise or blame of the different parts is taken for granted rather perhaps too easily he has not at least attempted to win or compel it by argumentative analysis in my conception at least the lines rejected as of no value do with the exception of the two first differ as much and as little from the language of common life as those which he has printed in italics as possessing genuine excellence of the five lines thus honourably distinguished two of them differ from prose even more widely than the lines which either proceed or follow in the position of the words a different object do these eyes require my lonely anguish melts no heart but mine and in my breast the imperfect joys expire but were it otherwise what would this prove but a truth of which no man ever doubted videlicet that there are sentences which would be equally in their place both in verse and prose assuredly it does not prove the point which alone requires proof namely that there are not passages which would suit the one and not suit the other the first line of this sonnet is distinguished from the ordinary language of men by the epithet to morning for we will set aside at present the consideration that the particular word smiling is hackneyed and as it involves a sort of personification not quite congruous with the common and material attribute of shining and doubtless this adjunction of epithets for the purpose of additional description where no particular attention is demanded for the quality of the thing would be noticed as giving a poetic cast to a man's conversation should the sportsman exclaim come boys the rosy morning calls you up he will be supposed to have some song in his head but no one suspects this when he says a wet morning shall not confine us to our beds this then is either a defect in poetry or it is not whoever should decide in the affirmative i would request him to reperuse any one poem of any confessedly great poet from homer to milton or from ischlus to shakespeare and to strike out in thought i mean every instance of this kind if the number of these fancied erasures did not startle him or if he continued to deem the work improved by their total omission he must advance reasons of no ordinary strength and evidence reasons grounded in the essence of human nature otherwise i should not hesitate to consider him as a man not so much proof against all authority as dead to it the second line and reddening phoebus lifts his golden fire has indeed almost as many faults as words but then it is a bad line not because the language is distinct from that of prose but because it conveys incongruous images because it confounds the cause and the effect the real thing with the personified representative of the thing in short because it differs from the language of good sense 
that the phoebus is hackneyed and a schoolboy image is an accidental fault dependent on the age in which the author wrote and not deduced from the nature of the thing that it is part of an exploded mythology is an objection more deeply grounded yet when the torch of ancient learning was rekindled so cheering were its beams that our eldest poets cut off by christianity from all accredited machinery and deprived of all acknowledged guardians and symbols of the great objects of nature were naturally induced to adopt as a poetic language those fabulous personages those forms of the supernatural in nature which had given them such dear delight in the poems of their great masters nay even at this day what scholar of genial taste will not so far sympathize with them as to read with pleasure in petrarch chaucer or spenser what he would perhaps condemn as puerile in a modern poet i remember no poet whose writings would safely stand the test of mr wordsworth's theory than spenser yet will mr wordsworth say that the style of the following stanza is either undistinguished from prose and the language of ordinary life or that it is vicious and that the stanzas are blots in the fairy queen by this the northern wagoner had set his sevenfold team behind the steadfast star that was in ocean waves yet never wet but firm is fixed and sendeth light from far to all that in the wild deep wandering are and cheerful chanticleer with his note shrill had worn once at phoebus fiery car in haste was climbing up the eastern hill full envious that night so long his room did fill at last the golden oriental gate of greatest heaven gan to open fair and phoebus fresh as bridegroom to his mate came dancing forth shaking his dewy hair and hurled his glistering beams through gloomy air which when the wakeful elf perceived straightway he started up and did himself prepare in some bright arms and battler's array for with that pagan proud he combat will that day on the contrary to how many passages both in hymn-books and in blank verse poems could i were it not invidious direct the reader's attention the style of which is most unpoetic because and only because it is the style of prose he will not suppose me capable of having in my mind such verses as i put my hat upon my head and walked into the strand and there i met another man whose hat was in his hand to such specimens it would indeed be a fair and full reply that these lines are not bad because they are unpoetic but because they are empty of all sense and feeling and that it were an idle attempt to prove that an ape is not a newton when it is self-evident that he is not a man but the sense shall be good and weighty the language correct and dignified the subject interesting and treated with feeling and yet the style shall notwithstanding all these merits be justly blamable as prosaic and solely because the words and the order of the words would find their appropriate place in prose but are not suitable to metrical composition the civil wars of daniel is an instructive and even interesting work but take the following stanzas and from the hundred instances which abound i might probably have selected others far more striking and to the end we may with better ease discern the true discourse vouchsafe to shew what were the times foregoing near to these that these we may with better profit know tell how the world fell into this disease and how so great distemperature did grow so shall we see with what degrees it came how things at full do soon wax out of frame ten kings had from the norman conqueror reign with intermixed and variable fate when england to her greatest height attained of power dominion glory wealth and state after it had with much ado sustained the violence of princes with debate for titles and the often mutinies of nobles for their ancient liberties for first the norman conquering all by might by might was forced to keep what he had got mixing our customs and the form of right with foreign constitutions he had brought mastering the mighty humbling the poorer white by all severest means that could be wrought 
and making the succession doubtful rent his new-got state and left it turbulent will it be contended on the one side that these lines are mean and senseless or on the other that they are not prosaic and for that reason unpoetic the poet's well-merited epithet is that of the well-languaged daniel but likewise and by the consent of his contemporaries no less than of all succeeding critics the prosaic daniel yet those who thus designate this wise and amiable writer from the frequent incorrespondency of his diction to his metre in the majority of his compositions not only deem them valuable and interesting on other accounts but willingly admit that they are to be found throughout his poems and especially in his epistles and in his hymen's triumph many and exquisite specimens of that style which as the neutral ground of prose and verse is common to both a fine and almost faultless extract eminent as for other beauties so for its perfection in this species of diction may be seen in lamb's dramatic specimens a work of various interests from the nature of the selections themselves all from the plays of shakespeare's contemporaries and deriving a high additional value from the notes which are full of just and original criticism expressed with all the freshness of originality among the possible effects of practical adherence to a theory that aims to identify the style of prose and verse if it does not indeed claim for the latter a yet nearer resemblance to the average style of men in the viva voce intercourse of real life we might anticipate the following as not the least likely to occur it will happen as i have indeed before observed that the metre itself the sole acknowledged difference will occasionally become metre to the eye only the existence of prosaisms and that they detract from the merit of a poem must at length be conceded when a number of successive lines can be rendered even to the most delicate ear unrecognizable as verse or as having even been intended for verse by simply transcribing them as prose when if the poem be in blank verse this can be effected without any alteration or at most by merely restoring one or two words to their proper places from which they have been transplanted for no assignable cause or reason but that of the author's convenience but if it be in rhyme by the mere exchange of the final word of each line for some other of the same meaning equally appropriate dignified and euphonic the answer or objection in the preface to the anticipated remark that metre paves the way to other distinctions is contained in the following words the distinction of rhyme and metre is regular and uniform and not like that produced by what is usually called poetic diction arbitrary and subject to infinite caprices upon which no calculation whatever can be made in the one case the reader is utterly at the mercy of the poet respecting what imagery or diction he may choose to connect with the passion but is this a poet of whom a poet is speaking no surely rather of a fool or madman or at best of a vain or ignorant phantast and might not brains so wild and so deficient make just the same havoc with rhymes and metres as they are supposed to effect with modes and figures of speech how is the reader at the mercy of such men if he continue to read their nonsense is it not his own fault the ultimate end of criticism is much more to establish the principles of writing than to furnish rules how to pass judgment on what has been written by others if indeed it were possible that the two could be separated but if it be asked by what principles the poet is to regulate his own style if he do not adhere closely to the sort and order of words which he hears in the market wake high road or ploughfield i reply by principles the ignorance or neglect of which would convict him of being no poet but a silly or presumptuous usurper of the name by the principles of grammar logic psychology in one word by such a knowledge of the facts material and spiritual that most appertain to his art as if it have been governed and applied by good sense and rendered instinctive by habit becomes the representative and reward of our past conscious reasonings insights and conclusions and acquires the name of taste by what rule 
that does not leave the reader at the poet's mercy and the poet at his own is the latter to distinguish between the language suitable to suppressed and the language which is characteristic of indulged anger or between that of rage and that of jealousy is it obtained by wandering about in search of angry or jealous people in uncultivated society in order to copy their words or not far rather by the power of imagination proceeding upon the all in each of human nature by meditation rather than by observation and by the latter in consequence only of the former as eyes for which the former has predetermined their field of vision and to which as to its organ it communicates a microscopic power there is not i firmly believe a man now living who has from his own inward experience a clearer intuition than mr wordsworth himself that the last mentioned are the two sources of genial discrimination through the same process and by the same creative agency will the poet distinguish the degree and kind of the excitement produced by the very act of poetic composition as intuitively will he know what differences of style it at once inspires and justifies what intermixture of conscious volition is natural to that state and in what instances such figures and colours of speech degenerate into mere creatures of an arbitrary purpose cold technical artifices of ornament or connection for even as truth is its own light and evidence discovering at once itself and falsehood so is it the prerogative of poetic genius to distinguish by parental instinct its proper offspring from the changelings which the gnomes of vanity or the fairies of fashion may have laid in its cradle or called by its names could a rule be given from without poetry would cease to be poetry and sink into a mechanical art it would be morphosis not poesis the rules of the imagination are themselves the very powers of growth and production the words to which they are reducible present only the outlines and external appearance of the fruit a deceptive counterfeit of the superficial form and colours may be elaborated but the marble peach feels cold and heavy and children only put it to their mouths we find no difficulty in admitting as excellent and the legitimate language of poetic fervour self-impassioned dunn's apostrophe to the sun in the second stanza of his progress of the soul thee eye of heaven this great soul envies not by thy male force is all we have begot in the first east thou now beginst to shine sucks early balm and island spices there and wilt anon in thy loose reined career at tagus po sen thames and danau dine and see at night this western world of mine yet hast thou not more nation seen than she who before thee one day began to be and thy frail light being quenched shall long long outlive thee or the next stanza but one great destiny the commissary of god that has marked out a path and period for everything who where we offspring took our ways and ends ceased at one instant thou not of all causes thou whose changeless brow ne'er smiles nor frowns oh vouchsafe thou to look and show my story in thy eternal book etc as little difficulty do we find in excluding from the honours of unaffected warmth and elevation the madness prepense of pseudo-poesy or the startling hysteric of weakness over-exerting itself which bursts on the unprepared reader in sundry odes and apostrophes to abstract terms such are the odes to jealousy to hope to oblivion and the like in dodsley's collection and the magazines of that day which seldom fail to remind me of an oxford copy of verses on the two suttons commencing with inoculation heavenly maid descend it is not to be denied that men of undoubted talents and even poets of true though not of first-rate genius have from a mistaken theory deluded both themselves and others in the opposite extreme i once read to a company of sensible and well-educated women the introductory period of cowley's preface to his pindaric odes written in imitation of the style and manner of the odes of pindar if says cowley a man should undertake to translate pindar word for word it would be thought that one madman had translated another as may appear when he 
that understands not the original reads the verbal traduction of him into latin prose than which nothing seems more raving i then proceeded with his own free version of the second olympic composed for the charitable purpose of rationalizing the theban eagle queen of all harmonious things dancing words and speaking strings what god what hero wilt thou sing what happy man to equal glories bring begin begin thy noble choice and let the hills around reflect the image of thy voice pisa does to jove belong jove and pisa claim thy song the fair first fruits of war the olympic games alcides offered up to jove alcides too thy strings may move but oh what man to join with these can worthy prove join theron boldly to their sacred names theron the next honour claims theron to no man gives place if first in pisa's and in virtue's race theron there and he alone even his own swift forefathers has outgone one of the company exclaimed with the full assent of the rest that if the original were madder than this it must be incurably mad i then translated the ode from the greek and as nearly as possible word for word and the impression was that in the general movement of the periods in the form of the connections and transitions and in the sober majesty of lofty sense it appeared to them to approach more nearly than any other poetry they had heard to the style of our bible in the prophetic books the first strophe will suffice as a specimen ye harp controlling hymns or ye hymns the sovereigns of harps what god what hero what man shall we celebrate truly pisa indeed is of jove but the olympiad or the olympic games did hercules establish the first fruits of the spoils of war but theron for the four-horsed car that bore victory to him it behoves us now to voice aloud the just the hospitable the bulwark of agrigentum of renowned fathers the flower even him who preserves his native city erect and safe but are such rhetorical caprices condemnable only for their deviation from the language of real life and are they by no other means to be precluded but by the rejection of all distinctions between prose and verse save that of metre surely good sense and a moderate insight into the constitution of the human mind would be amply sufficient to prove that such language and such combinations are the native product neither of the fancy nor of the imagination that the operation consists in the excitement of surprise by the juxtaposition and apparent reconciliation of widely different or incompatible things as when for instance the hills are made to reflect the image of a voice surely no unusual taste is requisite to see clearly that this compulsory juxtaposition is not produced by the presentation of impressive or delightful forms to the inward vision nor by any sympathy with the modifying powers with which the genius of the poet had united and inspirited all the objects of his thought that it is therefore a species of wit a pure work of the will and implies a leisure and self-possession both of thought and of feeling incompatible with the steady fervour of a mind possessed and filled with the grandeur of its subject to sum up the whole in one sentence when a poem or a part of a poem shall be adduced which is evidently vicious in the figures and sentexture of its style yet for the condemnation of which no reason can be assigned except that it differs from the style in which men actually converse then and not till then can i hold this theory to be either plausible or practicable or capable of furnishing either rule guidance or precaution that might not more easily and more safely as well as more naturally have been deduced in the author's own mind from considerations of grammar logic and the truth and nature of things confirmed by the authority of works whose fame is not of one country nor of one age End of chapter eighteen